0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining me today. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Marwa al shakri about her new book, Reading Darwin in Arabic 1860 to 1950. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2013. Now, it's always a great pleasure for me and, and really a special pleasure when I have the chance to talk with an author about a book that I not only really loved but also feel is really important. And this is one of those books. This is an absolute must read if you are interested in Darwin studies, histories of evolution, um, history of translation and science and translation in particular, histories of the modern Middle East, social thought, um, ideas of civilization, etc., etc. It's a really important book and very widely relevant. To a number of fields that um, El El Shakri is speaking to and is writing from. The book takes us into a very, what seems like a very specific context, right? The translation of the works of Darwin. And it uses it to open up a much larger story about the ways that authors reading and writing in Arabic language discourse in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Are using reading and engagement with the works of Darwin and others he's associated with in order to reconceptualize and to argue and debate about. Concepts including society, civilization, what's happening in the larger political context of British occupation, of the French French capture of Tunis, of what's happening in Turkey, etc., etc. And so, it's um, the book is doing a kind of work that situates a very specific local case study within a much larger context. It's just. A really fascinating story. You'll learn about authors who you may not have known about before, and ways of thinking about the relationships, in particular, between what we might consider to be separate categories, science and religion. Although the book um, problematizes those really usefully, um, and it's it's just a really interesting, fascinating read. So I will stop there and let you get to it. Um, it was really a pleasure to talk with Marwa about it. Um, It was a pleasure to read the book. And I really do hope you have a chance to read it after you listen to the interview because it's well worth the time. We're here today to talk with Marwa El shakri about her new book, Reading Darwin in Arabic, 1860 to 1950. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Marwa, and thank you very, very much for making time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you, and thanks for inviting me.
0: It's a pleasure, and I should say right at the outset that I really loved the book, and I also think this is a really important book, not just um, a really well-written and exhaustively researched book. So I'm really delighted um, that we have a chance to, to talk about it today and to also translate it a little bit for um, for our audience, um, speaking of translation, which is something that I'm sure we'll be talking about a little bit later. Huh.
1: Thanks. Yeah, thanks. I look forward to yeah chatting about it, too.
0: So, Marva, can you start us off as is traditional for the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society channel by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background and specifically how did you come to academic work in the history of science?
1: Right. Um... So, I actually um, majored in biology as an undergraduate and uh, kind of fell into the history of science accidentally, in fact, or felt like it at the time, as many things do. And um, I think I actually went into academia sort of not really thinking I was going to, going to stay on for very long and just was one of these things, history of science, from the point of view of a biologist. Um, at the age of 21 or whatever I was it seemed like this kind of strange uh, sister creature <laughs> so I went into it um, with that attitude really just kind of with a, a sense of curiosity um, and I think I sort of ended up choosing the topic and subject of this book in, in kind of the same way um, just kind of picking up interests um, as I kind of moved forward uh, with my work um, and with my thoughts and Evolution, I guess, had been something that, uh, as a biologist, I had focused on uh, quite a lot. And so it seemed kind of natural to kind of fuse together uh, some of my interests at that point.
0: It's really interesting because it sounds like um, that we both came to the history of science in really similar ways. Hmm. Um, just background in the sciences and working in the life sciences and deciding to kind of look at that as a historical phenomenon. On. Yeah. So the book that we're talking about today looks at the reception and translation of and also the engagement with the ideas of Darwin and associated thinkers in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries in Arabic language contexts. And those different contexts and the kind of differences between those different contexts um, come out really nicely in the book and I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about those um, in the context of our discussion. Now, you've talked a little bit about how you came to the topic, kind of stumbling upon it and, again, um, the context of having a background in the life sciences and um, focusing on that as part of your historical project as well. Now, this started out as a dissertation project, if I'm correct, Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, transformed in the course of dissertation to book into the monograph that we have now. So if you wouldn't mind, can you talk a little bit about that transformation? Were there any major ways that the project changed from dissertation to book or the way ways in which the way you were thinking about the arguments of the book or the nature of the book as an object changed from one form to another?
1: Hmm. Yeah. You know, I think this is something that, um, we spoke, we've spoken about this before, but, um, you know, it's something that we think about a lot and I think writers think about it one way or another a lot in the process of editing a work. Um, <clears throat> and I think that the, that transition from dissertation to first book, um, you know, is a, is, a, is a kind of interesting one in many ways. Um, and I, you know, I spent quite a bit of time actually uh, uh, in that, in that transition phase. Um, and, you know, I think in in a way it it was a good thing to do, and I I think it helped me to um, expand the project in a number of ways that I wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, but in other ways, it was kind of frustrating because it kind of brought to to mind this sense that you know, as a as a writer, um, you're always sort of chasing a moving target, and you're always kind of Uh, recreating yourself uh, as a writer in some ways too so it was kind of the editorial process was probably more painful than it should have been otherwise but um but as i said i think i got a lot out of it um and uh probably it's given me some something to think about when also speaking to students and other people who who worry about publishing and, and worry about the length of time that one needs to spend on editing and uh so I tend to kind of give both versions of that story one way or another.
0: <laughs> so were there any kind of conceptual foci of the book that weren't in the dissertation or any ways that the argument itself um, went underwent any kind of metamorphosis from one form to the other?
1: I think the basic structure of the book, um, it's interesting, the first few chapters in any case kind of stayed the same. Um And that was in some ways kind of frustrating because I – Somehow the, the analytical framework in my mind had shifted over time, and I'd brought in, for instance, translation and translation theory had become more and more important over time. But also, certain things shifted in terms of my understanding, for instance, of the connection between, say, natural theology and the different versions of natural theology, which I had in mind to some extent, but became sharper over time. Um, and I, you know, I was I, I could sort of rewrite bits of it, um, but Sort of, kind of writing the book all over again, which at some point one doesn't really want to do. Um, although well, some people do, and I admire that, but um, I, I never got to that point. So, so, the, so in a, in a way, the first few chapters are kind of similar. Um, but it was more of uh, this issue of kind of adding different layers of analysis over time. Mm-hmm.
0: So you've brought up the importance of translation and translation theory, and this is actually a really nice place to segue into the book itself. Um, In the introduction, you talk about the importance of and the challenges of reading in and writing about translation and translation of texts, of ideas, of practices, um, is really one of the major themes that threads through many of the chapters. Have there been any particular areas of translation theory, translation practice, that have been especially important in informing how you think about translation in the context of the work that the book is doing?
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting how, Translation kind of occurred to me in the issue of translation as a kind of uh, analytical or, um, let's say, theoretical question that occurred uh, to me in the course of writing this. It was was actually not so much through reading the literature and through reading translation theory, but actually in trying to translate text myself – and thinking through the problem of translation. And I was also doing it as a kind of second or third order translator, right? So I was reading a text in Arabic that had been written originally in English, but oftentimes it wasn't written originally in English. It was translated from the German or from the French. And sometimes, you know, there was another link in that chain. And so I would read these different versions and I would as a as a reader, I would think, My God, these are completely different texts. Like you know, what's going on, how am I going to somehow in the process of translating or thinking through this process of translation, make sense of the different layers of meaning. And it kind of questioned my own reading also of the original text in some ways, at different points too. So I kind of went to different bits of translation theory, and there are lots of, you know, readers out there and um, compendiums, and it's a, it's a, Really fascinating field in uh, literary theory and literary criticism that that I, I think we can learn a lot from as historians of science um, and and it, it just provided a kind of language uh, suddenly for, for something that I kind of experienced and struggled with um, and that process in particular of um, searching for equivalencies right so the the problem of uh, equivalency uh, at a theoretical level um, and the fact that there are never, ever two perfect uh, equivalents across language. And sometimes, even within a language, um, words or signs have different layers of meaning. Um, so it just really got me thinking about um, you know, the, the stuff that I was reading and how I was reading it as well.
0: This is also a really, um, we didn't plan this ahead of time, but you've anticipated my next comment, <laughs> actually, um, which is the title, even though so much of the book is about translation, the title of the book is not Translating Darwin. The title of the book is Reading Darwin.
1: Right. And
0: a lot of the book is about um, sort of rethinking, at least on an implicit level, right? Rethinking what reading means, what reading is, and really holding reading up as a conceptually interesting process that involves interpretation, as you put it early in the book, appropriation, omission, etc., was um, was that a con- well? Obviously, it was a conscious decision. But was the decision to call this "reading Darwin" um, given your early uh, comments um, in this introduction of the book about reading as a process? Did that come from? Some way that you wanted readers to rethink what reading is, or more largely, did in a, or more broadly speaking, did some conceptual way of thinking about reading and the kind of work that it does inform how you approached the book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the the, the title, um, as all titles do, I'm sure, had a kind of interesting um, genesis, which I probably won't remember entirely now, um, but. You know, partly it was the fact that to use translation and translating, I think um, that was the general consensus anyway from people that I um, was speaking to, um, you know, pub- the publishers in particular, um, the editors that I was working with, who thought it, it sounded a bit technical. And, I, you know, I can see that. And so there was something about trying to capture the process of what I was getting at, which wasn't entirely about translation consistently in each chapter as well. Um that I thought fitted this process of of reading, um, and it, and it was as I said, you know, um, it came out of the experience of of reading texts in translation, but it also I think um, connects up to um, you know reading Darwin in Arabic specifically, which is to say, you know, I would find myself trying to describe. My Arabic readers to people who worked on, let's say, um, Darwin studies or evolutionary studies, writ um, more broadly, but usually centered somewhere in Europe, if not um, Victorian England, and try and sort of somehow explain the uh, the way in which they read this text. And, uh, and often it seemed to me it was there was always some issue of whether or not they were reading it correctly or incorrectly. And so I had to. Um, really confront that issue very early on. Um, and so I think, in a way, for me, in, in any case, um, what, I, what I wanted to get at with that title, um, apart from the, the, the various plays that it uh, you know, sort of incorporates, uh, was, was this process of uh, thinking about the nature of, of reading as, a, um, as perhaps a more kind of complicated process than, than we've maybe um, thought of before.
0: Thank you. So Darwin's work was perhaps one of the most widely read um, kinds of work globally in the context that you're looking at in the 19th century, late 19th century especially. And you talk early on the book, early on in the book about the aspects of Darwin's work that perhaps lent it to having a tremendously global appeal. It was translated not just um, into and out of Arabic, but in Chinese and many, many other languages and contexts. You call it brilliantly ambiguous. Um, it's work that could be assimilated into lots of different local traditions of thought in lots of different ways. And he was kind of usefully indefinite and at times inconsistent about the question of religion in his writings. And this way of negotiating between what we might consider to be more religious aspects of the writing and scientific aspects of the writing um, is something that's um, very much a kind of motor over the course of the book and as we look at and try to understand the way it was taken up in Arabic language discourse in this context in the late 19th century just to kind of set the stage for listeners who may not be aware um, of the kind of the importance of the late 19th century to the history of science more broadly you um, very helpfully explain here that the in the late 19th century science became at once Western modern and universal and thanks to this transformation in how science was understood the notion of civilization was transformed um, as a result and this also winds up playing a really important role later in the book. Now, in order to take us into the specific case studies that you're looking at, the first chapter opens by looking closely at a popular science monthly called, um, in English, the Digest in Arabic, al-muqtataf. Um, So can you uh, maybe start us off by introducing Al-Muqtataf? What kind of journal was this? Um, What kinds of things was it publishing? And can you situate it within the wider ecology of popular science writing in 19th century Syria and Egypt?
1: Okay, great. Um, Sure, yeah. I mean, this this was, I think, probably the single most important um, journal in a way uh, for the book, but also... um, for Arabic popular science writing of the time um, so it's it's I think it's interesting to think about um, both you know, how it's founded and then also um, to think through with the, the its popularity really um, over many years and uh, it's uh, founded in uh, in the 1870s uh, and lasts really until 1952 so uh, ends with um, sort of kind of revolutionary Egypt in the 50s, uh, which is also interesting. So uh, essentially it's uh, founded by uh, two native tutors, as they were called, um, uh, instructors um, by the names of Yaqub Seruf and Feris Nimr. And there was a third uh, member of the group who was the printer, um, Shaheen who who's also uh, um, kind of a native assistant uh, for a Syrian Protestant college, which was uh, where they were teaching at the time or working at the time. And they had uh, also been uh, students at this college uh, and had worked closely with uh, some of the original uh, American Protestant missionaries who had gone to Beirut, um, you know, to proselytize, uh, but which actually ended up meaning uh, teaching you know, sort of the, the, the basics, kind of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and that sort of thing. Uh, and it was really about the promotion of literacy in a certain model of universal education. And underneath it, in a sense, it was a kind of civilizing mission. And this tension between uh, civilizing and proselytizing was something that missionaries were actually very aware of, and they thought about it constantly. And the, the, the fight, as it were, or the struggle usually took place, um, Differently depending on where you were situated. So if you were sort of in the field or abroad, uh, then you tended to take a different, usually tended to take a slightly different view from, say, trustee members and board members at home. Um, in any case, the, it, this idea had started, um, according to records that we have, in any case, what people have said in diaries and whatnot, uh, started through uh, a, a Protestant missionary by the name of Cornelius Van Dyke, who had uh, been one of these early um founders of the Beirut Mission Station. Um, well, not founders, but a very important uh, early member of that station. And uh, two of the, the two tutors, as I mentioned, and the printer. And the idea was uh, really to kind of popularize uh, all of this science writing that they were um, Translating and teaching to their students in Arabic, uh, but they wanted somehow to uh, reach broader audiences, and so uh, they they basically started off by uh, translating, um, you know, a kind of rough tra- summary translations. Uh, we would call it. Uh, they sort of have these little sort of digests of uh, Victorian and um, American uh, popular science journals, so they were in, in a sense kind of um, really part of that sort of late 19th century uh, trend in which you had uh, this, this huge uh, rise, uh, popular journals uh, of, of, of a wide variety of kinds, literary um, and scientific. And in fact they saw themselves as uh, literary and scientific and over time the, the literary would become more important, I think.
0: Now, you've mentioned the Syrian Protestant College, and you talk um, early in this part of the book about the importance of the college in translating science into Arabic in this period. Now, there's a strong interest in science education at the college that was part of the larger missionary project. Can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of Protestants um, to this context, there's there's quite a bit of controversy over the translation of Darwin um, in Arabic in this context. But work on Darwin in Arabic was actually strongly supported by Protestants, and it has to do in part with the kind of work being done at this college. So, why were Protestants um, so supportive of this translation of Darwin into Arabic? And can you maybe talk about that in the context of the. The way we understand science and religion, and, and I know I'm using an unfair um, dichotomy here, right? I mean, we, one of the kinds of work that the book does is precisely to break down this dichotomy between science and religion. But in any case, um, can you talk about Protestants in this context and their relationships or their, the ways that they were using science and religion um, together to forward their own goals in the context of um, Syria?
1: Absolutely. Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, apart from the um, connection, as I mentioned, with universal education, um, say that, in a sense, one has to understand Darwin and perhaps... This might be a shared kind of, um, if we want to call it a global story, uh, you could say that, but this may be a kind of um, shared story depending on uh, how important missionaries were for um, various, you know, sort of uh, autochthonous translations um, that they helped to produce, which I I think they uh, played a role in a number of uh, translations across the world like that so I mean that 's one aspect is that it 's bound up with kind of pedagogy and with their view of education um, which is a, which is of course a, ultimately a kind of spiritual project um, but I think in a, in a th- there's another way that it, it's very important for this story, and it's connected to the editors um, of Al-Muqtadaf, and it's connected to a number of other figures in the book, um, and it you know it, it is, um also connected institutionally to the fact that they're coming out of the Syrian Protestant College, which is a kind of interdenominational um, uh, a school uh, that's set up by a number of um, uh, donors from the U.S. and England and elsewhere, um, but I think that that you know, if you follow the kind of curriculum and if you follow the the, the reading list um, that a lot of these people are um, sort of engaging with at this time, uh, out of that out of that school and out of that context, you start to see how the science and religion, uh, how you know how this kind of question of science and religion come to come together in different ways, and I think primarily what it is is that. They are, um, in fact, uh, reading a lot of literature that is coming out of uh, particular uh, schools, uh, different sort of theological schools uh, that are coming out of uh, the US in particular. Uh, and these are Protestant uh, theologians, usually uh, American uh, theologians, who are mixing together some variety of uh, kind of Spencerian thought with uh, a kind of Darwinian uh, evolutionary thought and uh, trying to at the same time uh, make that compatible with um, with Protestantism writ large um, so the way in which actually a lot of uh, people read this in Arabic is not so much as a kind of incompatibility which is why that controversy uh, over Darwin in the 1880s that I talk about in the book strikes the editors and many other students um, at that school as, as, as very odd because they were kind of imbibing this uh, much more um, kind of syncretic, let's call it, uh, sort of Spenserian view of uh, of evolution, um, which had strong sort of overtones of, of kind of natural theology and whatnot, um, and and didn't necessarily uh, see that as kind of incompatible with with religious faith they couldn't understand the argument in fact um, uh, entirely or so they, they claimed at the time that may have been a rhetorical argument but I think in some ways they were um, surprised by the the extent of the reaction um, so I think that's also interesting because in a in, in a way you know you 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 start to appreciate um, you know sort of viewing their understanding of evolution, uh, and seeing how that how it changes over time, depending on what they're reading and the kinds of conversations they're engaging with. So you can see, for instance, once they start speaking with um, Muslim theologians, um, how their understanding also shifts. Well, once they start um, reading classical medieval works on, um, uh, I don't know, alchemy and transformationism uh, and so forth, they... Uh, or emanationism, uh, they, their ideas also start to shift, and you can kind of hear echoes of that in their writings at different points. Wow. Um, so I think the presumption that somehow you know science and religion are are these two kind of antithetical, totally separate creatures, sometimes blind us to the ways in which actually we approach um, each through the other.
0: Great, and you mentioned the work of Spencer um, a couple of times just now as we move from chapter one to chapter two, just to kind of mark for our listeners without going into too much detail, we also move with um, these two tutors, um, Saruf and Nimr, who move from um, the Syrian Protestant College to Egypt. Um, they move here, uh, they are interested as they move to Egypt in helping promote the idea of a Nahda, an Arab awakening, and they turn here, and you take us through this turn, to the work of Herbert Spencer, to kind of understand science and its relationship to society, to social progress, to his idea of a social organism. And in this chapter, you also talk quite a bit about the importance of print culture and the printing press to helping them and others work through the ideas of Spencer, especially in the context of what's called the Eastern question and kind of the way to understand race and civilization in the context of um, Arabic-speaking societies in this context. Now, now, as we move from there um, to the next chapters, we move into um, a particular debate over materialism in the context of late 19th, late 19th century Arabic discourse. Now, in chapter three, you take us into the works by um, a couple of major um, translators, writers, thinkers here, Shibli Shumayil and Jamal ad-Din al-Afghani. Mm -hmm. and take us into different ways of thinking about um, materialism and materialisms in the context of engagement with not just the work of Darwin, but also the work of the translation of some commentaries on Darwin's work from the early 1880s. For example, um, Ludwig Buchner's commentaries on Darwin. So Mm -hmm. let's look um, briefly at this. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Shemayel, Shibli Shemayel, is he how is he understanding materialism in the context that he's working on and what elements of that are um are debatable and are controversial in the context of the larger work that the chapter's doing
1: okay um so he shaman is kind of um he plays an interesting role i think in, in the book and i think in um in the Arabic press scene in general, I think he's conscious of that. Um, so you know, he he likes his kind of renegade status, um, and so I think in some ways um, he's kind of a, a deliberate sort of provocateur. right? He's kind of using his materialism uh, in a way to to question uh, the sort of unthinking spiritualisms, as he puts it, um, you know, a little haya of 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 his audiences or some of his audiences. So i uh, you know I think again, perhaps maybe we we need to understand um, you know kind of what he 's saying in, the, in in the broader context of of um, of how people are understanding also uh, a certain distinction. Um, between, say, spirit and matter, science and religion, and he's, he's trying to to shake that up a little bit. Um, but having said that, I think he, you know, he starts off um, kind of promoting spon- spontaneous generation and uh, really sort of taking uh, the view, um, despite the fact that much of the sort of scientific evidence or consensus uh, really has moved had moved against that, that it had been kind of proven and and therefore um, evolution was a fact, right, uh, that, that could have uh, real material uh, evidence. Uh, so there was always that question uh, in some people's minds of, of that sort of point of origin, right, which is to say that um, it wasn't just about the, 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 the problem of finding uh, transitionary forms, um, but also uh, of thinking of how you can Keep going back uh, through that chain uh, to that first right, sort of generation, uh, and so the generation of life uh, from dead matter, as uh, he was often putting it in various slogans. <laughs> was something that he thought uh, really was necessary to kind of make a kind of convincing, uh, logical explanation for evolution Um, seem justifiable for most people. So I think that was really what motivated him. Um, But I think in in other ways, you know, he he was much more of a... uh, kind of vitalist and idealist um and, and sort of he borrowed from uh, german materialism um but there are sort of strong echoes i think of, of german idealism in his thought and um that he didn't necessarily develop very well i mean he was a primarily a doctor um and uh you know sort of wrote on these subjects uh, on the side and uh, enjoyed as i said having this um kind of
0: Marwa, sorry, I think we got cut off. Um, we were talking in the last part of our conversation about um, materialism in the context of Shibli Shimeil and who was a defender of these ideas. Um, but as we move into the last part of this chapter and into the next chapter, you introduce us to some people who are actually arguing against um, kinds of materialist ideas that Shimeil was uh, was defending in favor, or rather was arguing in favor of. These include Afghani, um, as I mentioned earlier on, but they also include a Sufi sheikh, Hussein al-Jisr. And this is somebody who is the focus of Chapter 4. So can you talk a little bit about um, Jisr's work? Uh, In what way was he trying to challenge materialist arguments? And what's important for us to understand about his work and his ideas in order for us to understand what's happening in the, this part of the book, in terms of what you're arguing here,
1: right? Um, I think essentially, you know, much of the rest of the book, one could think of this this way. Although I don't know if I um, necessarily present it that way, and maybe not chapter 5 explicitly, but many of the other figures in, in the rest of the book are essentially kind of conversing with Schumail's hypothesis that evolution necessarily has to have a kind of um, you know, has, must be understood within a materialist framework. And so just is the first person, I think, to um, really challenge that uh, extensively, certainly the first person to challenge it, um, from the perspective of uh, you know, a Muslim theological framework, um, and so essentially what he uh, does in, in this book is he kind of embeds it in a series of arguments um, in, in which basically the, the book is organized around uh, various sects or schools that emerged from the time of the Prophet Muhammad uh, to the present, uh, although the, the, the chronology and the sense of temporality um, uh, isn't necessarily consistent. Um, so you know, past and present critics kind of meld into one, um, but it but it's organized kind of thematically against um, uh, you know, sort of around this question of uh, disbelief and what were the conditions or the um, what were the sort of uh, factors that led people to uh, refute uh, this message of Islam and so. One of the chapters is on uh, evolutionary materialism, and he's very careful to uh kind of put the two together um and then also to separate them at different points in in the, in the course of that chapter and so that um chapter uh where he deals with evolutionary materialism is uh kind of organized uh, as a as a series of um you know, it's it's like a kind of Socratic dialogue, and so it's a sort of uh, it's a sort of series of questions and answers that a Sufi sheikh uh, is uh, is being asked by uh, a young student, uh, evolutionary materialist. And I think it's also kind of a metonym for what um, and just and a lot of people worried at that time, which was that you were getting these young students, as they thought uh, uh, thought of it, going into uh, these these new schools, uh, learning about uh, the new science. And understanding it in a kind of materialist way, and so this was meant to be a kind of corrective. And so, basically, in the you know, to make a long story short, uh, he he refutes the idea that a materialist perspective is necessary uh, for an evolutionary one, and shows that most of the laws of evolution that Darwin is describing, or that this evolutionary materialist is describing, are commonsensical, and that there's nothing really uh, new to it but that it would be incorrect on a, on a logical or syllogistic ground to argue for a materialist view of the
0: evolution of life. Great. Now you brought up um, education as one of the issues that he's concerned with. And the end of this chapter and um, along with the next chapter, look carefully at the issue of education and in particular debates about the place of science education in school curricula. And so uh, arguments for reform of school curricula in light of the ideas, this kind of evolutionary ideas, the kinds of ideas that are being engaged with, translated into, um, and discussed in the context of Arabic language literature on these topics. Now, one of the people who's also interested interested in this is the Mufti in uh, Chapter 5, Darwin and the Mufti. This is the Grand Mufti of Egypt, Muhammad Abdu. Um, can you talk a little bit about him um, in this context? Because he is, along with um, the um uh, who we just talked about in the previous chapter, um, this mufti is interested in bringing together ideas of um, evolution with Quranic exegesis, right? And so he's another person who doesn't necessarily think that uh, Quranic ideas and contemporary ideas of evolution are incompatible. It's just... um, it's a matter of how you interpret evolutionary ideas and how you bring them to bear on an idea of rationality, um, in Quranic exegesis. So this is a long way of asking you uh, to talk a little bit about, um, Muhammad Abdu. Um, what, how is he important to the story as you're telling it in this part of the book and and what's um, important for us to understand about the contributions he's making to these debates? Right. So,
1: um, Abdu is a is a is a kind of important and much cited figure um, for people who work on, um, well, almost any aspect of uh, of let's call this some intellectual history in the twentieth century. Um, and partly because I think he he quickly gains his reputation shortly after his death in 1905 of being kind of you know Muslim modernist, and this is a term that comes from, um, as I, I think I try and explain in the book briefly, um, from Catholic modernism, and so this idea that by wedding together sort of science and theology, one would create a new modernist kind of theological strain was really I think what captured people's imagination, um, who were writing about Ahabtu after his death, uh, in particular, uh, and helped to kind of promote, um, you know, promote, uh, His reputation, I think, uh, in different ways. But he's also, I think, an interesting figure because he didn't, as you mentioned, they didn't really see this question of um, evolution and exegesis as a particularly problematic one, and that he thought in particular that there were many, um, you know, hermeneutical and exegetical trends uh, in, in Muslim theology um, that allowed for a certain kind of flexibility. And so some of the issues that he thought confronted uh, Christian theologians uh, seemed uh, really just uh, not to be uh, an issue at all for him. Uh, and he's explicit about that in some ways. Um, and also, I think, because... Uh, He was a a rationalist and uh, sort of uh, self-consciously promoted uh, Islam as a a kind of rationalist theology and creed. Uh, He, he, I think, also wanted to make uh, that argument for compatibility on on those grounds. Um, But I think the question of education really was what drew him into this whole debate. Um, And in a way, I, I, you know, he doesn't. Actually, say much about uh, Darwin or about evolution, and I say that in the chapter. Um, but he's a, a really important figure, and I think um, the fact that he gets bound up with debates about evolution, as he does uh, at the end of his life, in terms of you know sort of the fact that some people start to use uh, his interest in evolution or his reference to Darwin and Spencer against him. Um, and the fact that he's also thinking about science education more broadly gets really at the heart of what um, I think this book is about. And so in some ways, it's, it's, it's a bit like the, the relationship between um, evolution and education that kind of motivated the X Club um, and other people who tried to uh, rethink the nature of um, the role of the state uh, vis-a-vis its citizens and the nature of the education they got. And so there was something about the way in which a lot of evolutionists, and it was Spencer in particular that he admired, uh, approached this question uh, that really captured his imagination um, and actually fit with his I think, pedagogic program in in interesting ways. Great.
0: Um, And just for listeners who are particularly interested in the history of education, I'll just signal that there's a really interesting and very extended discussion in this chapter, the end of Chapter 5, about um, sort of his ideas for the reform of al-Azhar, And you talk about uh, the fact later on in this chapter that even though those reforms didn't really happen, as a consequence, we have the first modern university in Egypt founded. And so it's a really interesting chapter in the history of pedagogy and education, um, as well as these larger issues that we have been talking about. Now, you mentioned the state, which, again, really nicely brings us into the next chapter on evolutionary socialism. Um, now, as you take us into this chapter, you we learn about forms of utopian discourse in Arabic. Now, they become more and more associated with science and technology in discussions of how to achieve the perfect state in the future. And this comes along with what you characterize as a new Darwin for Arabic readers. And this is a Darwin um, and a kind of Darwinian thought that's more focused on mutual aid and the power of social cooperation. So we move here from the individual to the collective. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of what is, um, how do we understand this transformation and the the emergent importance of the collectivity um, in the context of Arabic language discourse and its involvement, perhaps, with ideas of socialism in the context of the work this chapter is doing.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways this also connects to um, something that we just discussed, which is really sort of the importance of Spencer in this story. Um, and... And I think, you know, the the, the question of kind of individualism and collectivism um, emerged in my mind in any case, um, partly out of trying to think about how I I would encounter such wildly different readings of Spencer, right? So that someone um, would be, uh, you know, in the 1870s or 1880s using Spencer to uphold um, a kind of staunch – individualist ethos uh, in which the state uh, basically retracts from uh, any uh, responsibility for collective welfare, because, of course, that would um, impede the individual development and evolutionary progress um, that each person was meant to kind of struggle for on their own somehow, um, irrespective of the limits that uh, the state and actual social and political context uh, would uh, impose upon them. But in, in any case, um, I think that that was one reading, you know, for instance, that um, many people early on, especially the Muqtatov group coming out of the Syrian Protestant College and the kinds of stuff that they were reading, uh, promoted early on. And then it slowly starts to shift and you would get these other readings of Dar- of Spencer um, and also of Darwin in which uh, a more kind of collectivist ethos was being promoted and uh, the idea of uh of uh, individual struggle was uh, really reinterpreted as uh, a kind of collective uh, collective struggle, and, and and this is where a lot of anarchists um, and socialist ideas start to influence um, the way in which uh, people were reading Darwin uh, and reading evolutionary texts at that time. And so, Kropotkin's ideas on mutual aid are, are really huge uh, in Arabic and um, and many other uh, thinkers, and in particular, the, the um, a lot of the Fabian um uh, evolutionary uh, utopians of, of that generation so wells and um and various other figures later on would also become quite important um precisely for that connection and you know the, I think I mean this is a also a kind of it's a kind of huge question these are all huge questions but um but this you know gets also gets into the issue of uh, thinking about collectivism and what we might call socialism in the nineteenth century and its um, pedigree uh, you know both etymologically and uh, politically in and Arabic discourses. And so it picked up on that and it's an important part of how um, I think Darwin is read in fact and you know one of the things I try and argue in that in that chapter is that really it's it's Darwin and not Marx that introduces socialism and from our perspective oftentimes that seems now like a kind of strange connection. But um, for many people in the 19th century around the world, again, I think that's how uh, it was through evolution that um, you came to see the argument in favor of collectivism.
0: Great. Thank you so much. And um, there's also, there are some discussions toward the end of this chapter, again, just to signal this for listeners who might be particularly interested in these topics. um, There are discussions of, the founding of the first Egyptian Socialist Party and the founder of that actually starts advocating a program for eugenics. So historians um, who are interested, or people interested in the history of eugenics will find some particularly interesting material in this chapter. There's also a more extended idea of a theme we haven't talked um, that much about, but that recurs throughout many of the chapters. And this is the emergence of a Nahda or Renaissance um, in this context. And so that's also an important theme throughout this book. Now, as we come to the last body chapter before the afterword, though, we come back to Darwin. We come from Spencer um, to really focusing on what you call the first verbatim translation of Darwin's origin of species. Now, this first appears in Arabic in 1918. And in this first instantiation of the text, um, there are... um, five chapters. It includes translations of chapters one through five of the sixth edition of The Origin of Species. And 10 years later, in 1928, four chapters and some extra paratextual material are added to that translation. Um, This is a fascinating case study here in the translation of um, scientific texts more generally. And one of the really interesting things happening here is that you talk about the kinds of decisions in terms of terminology and translational of context, of, of concepts rather, that are made by the Egyptian writer who's actually in charge of translating this text. So let's talk a little bit about that. Can you talk about some of the ways that this writer, Ismail Mashar, is attempting to, as you call it, domesticate Darwin and the ways that he's using some classic texts, some medieval texts to justify his use of words here?
1: Okay yeah so um Mother is an interesting figure, I think, because he um in the course of his career really is very much engaged with this question of translation and um, is involved in a number of um, translation bureaus and things like this, so he himself um spends a lot of time thinking and writing about translation, so that 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 made him interesting um to me in, uh, in a number of ways as well, because it was rarely really to find um, people meditating on on the process of translation as they were translating. Right? So he would often in his prefaces, for instance, describe, you know, in, the, in the 1928 preface, for instance, um, there's a long description there of people's reactions to the translation, right? And so he's very struck by this fact that almost everyone, as far as he presents it, asked the question or some variety of, of the question, why did you bother to translate this at all? You know, if, if someone wanted to read this, they would they would probably be able to read it in, you know, in English or in French. And Why do we need it in Arabic? And he found this such a strange question um, that you know, he, he needed to kind of meditate on it, uh, meditate upon it really and sort of try and figure out why. Um why people were asking it, and um, why they didn't see as, he saw the kind of inherent value of producing a work in translation as an, as, as an original work in a, in, a, in a linguistic sense um, and so for him, and this is what he really writes about in his nineteen twenty preface it wasn't just that the experience of reading the text was the same, but that it would actually through the translation transform how someone would think in um, you know, in in, in that um, in that sort of host language. Um, so, I think one of the things that I try and get at in that chapter is really just to try and imagine um, how must her approach the question of uh, finding conceptual equivalence across languages and in particular for Arabic, um, which has a very interesting kind of history and um, specific uh, set of, uh, you know, grammatical rules for, for word construction and also for translation. In fact, um, there was, you know, I wanted to, to really just try and sort of think through with him in a way, um, how one might approach the, uh, Different possibilities for, for for terms, including ones like evolution, um, uh, or struggle, or some of the other ones that uh, that that he spends time thinking about. So, so it's really that chapter is really just um, following kind of Mushev think through this this problem of um, finding the right equivalent. Uh, in, in a new language um, and and thinking through the process of reading and translating really.
0: great, thank you so much. So um just to kind of also mention for listeners. You talk here um, in this chapter about the importance for Mazhar of evolution in terms of the progress of the moral and ethical life of man. So, for him, science had political goals and implications. And I mention this because this is a part of the book that's actually really, really important that threads through all of the chapters, but that we haven't really had much time to talk about. But I want to signal for listeners, and that is the importance of the larger social and political context within which these transformations in sort of conceptual, um, discursive, intellectual milieu are actually happening. And so uh, at many points of the book, you're contextualizing these translation and, and sort of intellectual activities within, for example, the context of the French invasion of Tunis in 1881, the British occupation of Egypt starting in 1882, and here in this chapter um, we see also the, the implications for the success of the Turkish Republic under Ataturk um, for what's happening here and for how Mazhar and others are thinking about these larger issues of evolution, society, um, morality, and the Im- imbrication of science with not just now spirituality religion, but also politics um, and society. So there's an afterword to the book as well. And I'll again, just signal this for listeners. Um, you bring us into a court case in Egypt in the late 1990s over a book published by an Egyptian religious scholar and Cairo University professor, which becomes controversial um, and, and sort of looks at the relationship between science and religious exegesis in a new way, and in a way that's a little bit different from what we've seen prior to the book. And so the afterword not only brings together the narrative um, elements that we've talked about um, in that are uh, emergent in pri- previous chapters, but also kind of moves us ahead um, into the tw- late 20th century to look at how some of these um, elements have transformed. So, Marwa, I've taken up a lot of your time, and there's a ton more material um, that we could talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich book, and we've really, 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 really just scratched the surface here. Is there anything in particular about you know any of the chapters or about the kind of work that the book is doing in general that we haven't had a chance to talk about um, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers?
1: Um, hmm i you know I'm sure there's always more to be said about everything um but um I think i you know I, w- I would just say that um you know that beginnings and endings are always kind of ambiguous things um but you know so finding the right beginning and ending mm-hmm. this book was was a little tricky, i think in some ways and um and in particular the ending uh was i thought uh. More random in some ways, but I try to make an argument there about the shift um, that occurs uh, beginning in the interwar period, but um, as precedents earlier, and then sort of think about those sort of how the the, the narrative um, and the discussion over evolution really really changes. And this is again, I think, um, something that happens in many places across the world. And I, I guess the last thing I would just say is that. You know, I think there is something quite interesting about this period in the 1960s and 1970s and not just um, for the story that I'm telling here, but I think um, generally in terms of thinking about uh, how people understand evolution and how people encounter and read it and the variety readers um that it produces and there's something in particular about the, the rise of um a variety of, of programs um out of unesco and various other um international bodies where uh, the, the kind of human evolutionary story gets mobilized and um, becomes important i think politically in, in that sense and and then there are um the rise of other kinds of uh, global discourses um, that are anti-evolutionary in nature as well and um, you know that that are sort of counter to these and um, and so you get this kind of interesting uh, I think proliferation and and so I think I guess the last thing I I would say is that um, in some ways I, I stop where, um, where the, the the publications in Arabic on evolution really take off, and um, the, the huge number of pamphlets, and um, some of these are ephemera, and not always very easy to to locate, um, but but one finds them every now and then, and or hears of them every now and then. Uh, so there's you know a lot more to be said about um, where this story ends up, but um, I don't really go there.
0: So. Now that the book is out, and again, congratulations on the book. I think it's going to be a landmark study um, for many, many, many decades to come. What's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? And what are you working on now?
1: Uh, so now I'm working on um, on universal history, I guess. So I decided to uh, scale down. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's connected, actually, to the, to the first project, in a sense, in, in that it's, um, I guess, I'm trying to confront some of the historiographical issues that I felt I faced when I was writing this book, um, and sort of think through the genesis of that story, in a way. Um, and so, really just trying to think through the appeal of science for um, a lot of people like my popular science editors or uh, like Darwin's translators, translator is also, in the 19th and 20th centuries um, and think about its importance for our understanding of world history
0: well best of luck on that project I will look forward to talking with you about that book too whenever it's done oh, thank and you. Um, it's really been a pleasure Marwa Congradua- congratulations and thank you again thanks that was fun thanks a lot